sun is moving north and it's getting warm and it's going to be 53 by Thursday. So spring's almost here. How great is that? Uh, wanted, to, uh, wanted to thank you. I don't know if you saw on the uh, bulletin that went out the uh, accounting for the Christmas project this year that uh, we hit $52,000. Just incredible. Uh, so thank you so much for that. Uh, what that means is that instead of just replacing two of the uh, air conditioners, we're going to do all four. <clears throat> and Pete, who, Pete West, who never says enough, has said that uh, if any of you want to continue to give to that fund, <clears throat> maybe we'll put a, uh, a separate conditioning system in just for the lobby, which currently doesn't get very good air circulation in the hot weather. So uh, we'll see what happens, but thanks for all that you've done. And uh, the, the work on the cottage out here that we, we raised funds for is going on at a good pace. The plumbers are about finished and the framing's done. I think this week the plan is to do some drywalling in there, but it's going to be a, a great little spot. So we think in a couple weeks that's going to be finished, and if the weather warms up a little bit, the snow's gone, we're going to have a little open house on Sunday so that you can walk over uh, before or after services and take a look at what we've done. So uh, thanks so much for that. All right. <clears throat> Today we're going to go back to our study in Ruth and uh, move on to chapter 2. In the previous weeks, we've, we've met two of the main characters. Naomi, the Israelite woman who, with her family, moves from Bethlehem to Moab, falls upon hard times, loses her husband and both her sons, and then comes back to Bethlehem with one of her daughters-in-law, a Moabite woman by the name of Ruth. So we've <clears throat> encountered them already, and uh, today we're going to pick up the, the third main uh, character uh, who is Boaz. And the, uh, the theme I want to pick up on in what we read today <clears throat> is an emphasis on character, on the quality of these people that are in this story, because they're quite remarkable. So follow along, and then we'll We'll talk about two of them. We'll talk about Boaz and again about Ruth. Now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, a man of standing from the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Naomi said to her, go ahead, my daughter. So she went out, entered a field, and began to glean behind the harvesters. As it turned out, or by chance, a uh, very understated way here. You know, if you're an Israelite, you're already saying to yourselves, oh, yeah, right, just by chance, right? 
As it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. Just then, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they answered. Boaz asked the overseer of his harvesters, who does that young woman belong to? The overseer replied, she is the Moabite who came back from Moab with Naomi. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. She came into the field and has remained here from morning till now, except for a short rest in the shelter. So Boaz said to Ruth, my daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field and don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the women. I've told the men not to lay a hand on you. And whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. At this she bowed down with her face to the ground. She asked him, why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? Boaz replied, I've been told all about what you have done for your, for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live with a people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. May I continue to find favor in your eyes, my Lord, she said. You have put me at ease by speaking kindly to your servant, though I do not have the standing of one of your servants. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, come over here, have some bread and dip it in the wine vinegar. When she sat down with the harvesters, he offered her some roasted grain. She ate all she wanted and had some left over. As she got up to glean, Boaz gave orders to his men, let her gather among the sheaves and don't reprimand her. Even pull out some stalks for her from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up and don't rebuke her. <clears throat> all right, so. Let's uh, think about this guy, Boaz, and uh, how he fits into this story. He is, we're told, <clears throat> a man of standing in Bethlehem. And, and I think that man of standing idea implies <clears throat> strength, wealth, Influence. It might also indicate. Uh, it might also indicate military prowess, uh, although that's not evident here. But this, the word here, the man of Hebrew word. We want to think about this a little bit. Hayil, the man of Hayil. It's uh, it's used other places to describe heroes who uh, defended Israel with their military prowess. So that may be part of what uh, <clears throat> we have about Boaz. It would actually fit his family, as we will see in a little bit. But 
<clears throat> certainly the ideas of, of strength, of character, wealth. Uh, he's got people working for him, so uh, he has some, some wealth and, uh, and influence. A man of standing. <clears throat> but here's something that goes with that. Not only is he a man of standing, but he is a man of integrity. There are people who have standing, <clears throat> that is, they have clout, they have presence, right? But they don't have integrity. They have power without character. But Boaz is a man of integrity. Here's a, here's a definition that uh, maybe captures some of those ideas as we think about what kind of a person he was. <clears throat> integrity is having the inner strength to be truthful and trustworthy, acting justly and honorably, and being consistent in words and actions. We could probably add to that. I, I often like the word wholeness as a synonym for integrity. Boaz was a man as we see him acting over the next few chapters, who embodies wholeness. He is a good man. He's not just a man that uh, was born with a silver spoon in his mouth, right? He's not just a man who's acquired money and because he has money has power. But he's a, he's a good man, a man of integrity. <clears throat> and that integrity then plays out in a number of areas that uh, are important. It plays out in the area of power, personal power. Uh, power is always potentially dangerous. And we see that over and over again uh, around us in the world, right? People, people have power in one way or another. They may have <clears throat> just physical power. And if it's not controlled, they're dangerous. Uh, it may be the power of, uh, it may be political power. And we certainly can look around not only <clears throat> nationally, but internationally, and see that people of great political power, if it is not bound with integrity, are a danger to lots of people. So Boaz is a man who has power, but, but that power isn't turned toward abuse. I mean, that, that's the big concern, right, with power, that it becomes abusive, and a lot of people get hurt. But Boaz is a man with power and standing, but he knows how to use it for good. And that will, that will play out in the story. Another aspect of, of standing and strength is, <clears throat> is wealth. And and wealth, of course, is, a, is another form of power. 
and therefore it's easily subject to abuse. So once again, think of the stories of people who have not only power, power and influence, but who have wealth and who use that wealth to protect themselves and, and potentially uh, be involved in all kinds of abuse, of abuse. The Jeffrey Epstein story, right? Classic picture of where wealth is used in terribly abusive ways. A man of integrity who also has his sexuality under control, used in non-abusive ways. And, and, of course, he has the potential, we'll see it in chapter 3. Chapter 3 is kind of mysterious, but, but it's pretty obvious that there's, there's a big opportunity for sexual abuse in the Ruth Boaz story. <clears throat> and, and yet, Ruth is safe because the man of power, standing, and influence that she has encountered in Boaz is, is a man of integrity, of wholeness, in the way he uses his power, in the way he uses his wealth, and in the way he expresses his sexuality. The man of character. <clears throat> now, friends, we live, we live in a world where this kind of character stands out because it's unusual. And, and one of the sad things in our day is that, that it's even at places unusual in the church. I mean, the, the epidemic of abuse that we're seeing in the culture is also now an epidemic of abuse within the American church. And what it comes back to is a failure of integrity. Uh, we've got pastors stepping down all over the place and, and not infrequently it involves the abuse of power, financial malfeasance, abuse of money, and the abuse of sexuality. We like to think that as the people of God, we are distinct from our culture. But if we're not careful, we're not very distinct. And of course, this story of Ruth is so important because the days of Ruth and Boaz were those kind of days, right? It's the days of the judges. That's what we're told. And in the days of the judges, everybody in Israel, well, not everybody, but but in a general sense, the people of Israel did what was right in their own eyes, and that wasn't good. Boaz is a man of integrity. Now, there's one other thing I, I want to get at, and this has been this is the most fascinating thing I, I think I've been seeing in this story over the last couple of weeks. <clears throat> Boaz is a man who has family capital. You've probably heard of the term social capital. <clears throat> you know, social capital is, is what some people have 
given the way they've been raised and their, and their family context and, and all the rest. They have, uh, what would you say, connections. They know how to get things done because they know people and they're related to people in various ways. That's, that's social capital. And Boaz has that, but I want to think particularly of family capital. See, what are his family connections? What's the heritage, if you will, that, that has gone into producing this man at this particular time? So, think about this little chart with me. We started to talk about this last week, but I want to come back to it, partly because uh, some folks were confused. We talked about Boaz's father and mother, right? Father is Solomon, and, and uh, I, I was probably a little mealy mouth, and some people heard me say Solomon. It's not Solomon. Solomon's later. But, but Solomon marries the prostitute Rahab from the city of Jericho, marries a Canaanite woman. And we talked a little bit about Rahab as, as apparently a, a pretty feisty, gutsy, brave person of faith. She has an experience of conversion as Ruth also experienced a conversion from Canaanite worship to the worship of Yahweh. We know, Rahab says to the spies, uh, we know that, that your God is behind all this. So they get married. In fact, somebody asked me an interesting question this week that I think might be right. They said, is it possible that Solomon was one of the two spies sent in to spy out the city of Jericho and, and Rahab was the one who hid them? Now, we're not told that in Scripture, but that's a pretty interesting question, isn't it? I, I suspect it may well be the case especially as we track the family back further. It would make sense. So Solomon marries Rahab, and that's part of the, the background of Boaz. In, in our story today, remember Ruth's question. Why is it that you take notice of me, a foreigner? Well, part of the answer to that is, Boaz's mother was a foreigner. He, know, he knows what it's like to be an outsider. That's already in his family. He's not, he's not worried about, ultimately, we're going to find out, he's not worried about marrying a foreigner. That's part of his family capital. Now, let's back it up a little bit further, another generation. Boaz's grandfather. Nashon. Who is he? He's not mentioned in the, in the Ruth story, but he's mentioned elsewhere in Numbers chapter 2. Now look at this. This is about Israel after they've come out of Egypt and they're, they're living in the wilderness, right? And they, have, they camp out in the wilderness and and they have to have some kind of order, so they have the tabernacle in the center of the camp, and then they have three tribes on each of the compass points, north, west, east, south. 
The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, the Israelites are to camp around the tent of meeting, some distance from it, each of them under their standard and holding the banners of their family. On the east, toward the sunrise, the divisions of the camp of Judah are to encamp under their standard. The leader of the people of Judah is Nashon, the son of Aminadab. See that? The leader of Judah, the commander, if you will, is Boaz's grandfather. And Judah, you may recall, is the largest of the 12 tribes. Militarily the most powerful. Ultimately, it becomes the tribe from which the kingly line comes, the line of David. So there's a tradition in this family. There's family capital, you might say, of leadership, strength, influence. And then there's another interesting thing here. You see the chart? Aminadab, I don't know how many sons he has, but Nashon is one of them, leader of the tribe of Judah. But Aminadab also has a daughter, Elisheba. And look at this. Who does she marry? She marries Aaron, the brother of Moses, the first high priest of Israel. Now, what does that tell us? I think it tells us this, that that there were in Israel a, a group, maybe a relatively small group, of influential families who not only had power and influence, but they had spiritual vitality. Right? So, so Aaron the priest finds a wife in a family that has a tradition of authentic faith. I, I think that's what this is talking about. <clears throat> That is enormous family capital. So, <clears throat> so what that suggests to me is that normally a guy like Boaz doesn't just pop out of nowhere. Now, occasionally happens. Obviously, there are people who come to face from a, a pagan background and, and have vital faith and make an enormous impact. <clears throat> and Rahab, the prostitute, and Ruth, the Moabite, they're those kind of people. But the way God, what can we say? The way God preferentially seems to work is that he works through family traditions, through generations of faithful people and, and to be born and to grow up in that kind of a context 
is an enormous benefit. And what that means is that, that that's something to be valued. That's, that's something, if we've got young families and, and you're raising your kids, as parents you want to cultivate that. That tradition of godliness in your children and in for me, my grandchildren. That's an enormous benefit to them. If you're a younger person and you say, I think I might want to get married. Well, what kind of a person are you looking for if you want to get married? Are you a Are you a salmon who's looking for a woman of vital faith? A Boaz who ends up marrying Ruth, a woman of vital faith. Are you an Elisheba who's looking for a husband of vital faith and finds an Aaron? I mean, God, God does these things, right? Because the Ruth story is very much about God bringing two people from very, very different places together with a purpose, a purpose of continuing family capital, family capital, family capital, and in three more generations, there's King David, Israel's greatest king. And again, he doesn't just pop out of nowhere. There's a tradition here. All right, that's, that's Boaz. Let's talk a little bit about Ruth. We've already encountered Ruth, but let's, let's think a little bit about her character as well. <clears throat> Ruth uh, says to Naomi, apparently soon after they're, they're back in town, uh, I need to go gleaning. I need to provide for us. Isn't it interesting that the outsider initiates and Naomi doesn't? <clears throat> Why is that? I suspect partly because Naomi is deeply depressed. You get deeply depressed enough, you don't even want to get out of bed. And, and that's, that's what I sense about Naomi. She is, she's gotten back to to Bethlehem, but just barely. So Ruth, <clears throat> Ruth is the one who takes initiative here, and she's going out to look for food, not just for herself, but for Naomi also. Naomi's going to stay at home, and she's going to go gleaning. <clears throat> so there's a this is, this is Ruth and Naomi going on the Israelite welfare system. And, and here's, here's the system. Now, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap to the very corners of your field, nor shall you gather the gleanings of your harvest. 
Nor shall you glean your vineyard, nor shall you gather the fallen fruit of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the needy and for the stranger. I am the Lord your God. All right? So Israelite landowners are prohibited from gleaning. That is, they're prohibited from going back the second time. <clears throat> Anytime, even, even today when you have machinery for harvesting and go through, there's always a certain amount of, of grain or corn that ends up on the ground. And uh, what are you going to do with that? For the most part today, people just ignore it and it gets run into the mud and plowed in. And, but, but where there's more poverty, that, that's valuable stuff. And the law said, landowners, leave that for the poor. Don't, don't be concerned to get every little last bit along the edges of your field and the corners. <clears throat> leave it. And when you're reaping the harvest, you're cutting the grain and gathering it together in bundles. Some of the grain is going to get shaken loose and it's going to end up on the ground. Don't pick it up. Leave it for the gleaners who will come later. So this is what Ruth is going out to do. This is subsistence living. And you can't, you can't glean all year because you don't have growing season all, all year. This kind of gleaning... It doesn't talk about the grapes here, but, but what we read about is, is gleaning of the grain harvest, which is only two months. It starts, it starts in the spring, around our Easter, it would have been Passover for uh, the Jewish people, and uh, the first crop is, is barley, and the barley finishes, and then the wheat comes in. Total is about two months from Passover to Pentecost. So, I mean, think about it. <clears throat> Ruth wants to provide for not only herself but Naomi. There's about two months in which grain can be gathered to last for the year. And you're gleaning. You're, you're just picking the leftovers. It's tough work. <clears throat> but that's what she goes out to do. Now, she's a woman then of initiative, but, but now we come to the, the toughest thing to interpret in this whole chapter, and I, I've spent a bit of time on it, not because I'm a, an expert on uh, reading the Hebrew, which is, is tough Hebrew right here. That's why it's, there's so many questions about it. But I've kind of sorted through listening to a lot of different people. And, and I think what goes on is not only does Ruth take initiative, but she takes some risk. She takes risk in what she asks for. Remember, she, she talks to the overseer, the foreman, and she asks a question. Please allow me to glean. But here's specifically what she says. Please let me glean and gather after the reapers among the sheaves. Thus she came, this is the overseer reporting, right? Reporting to Boaz. This is what she said. Let me glean and gather after the reapers among the sheaves. Thus she came and has remained 
Literally, she came and she stood from the morning until now. Why did she stand? Well, apparently because the foreman didn't feel he had the permission or the ability to say yes or no to her request. So what was she asking? Was she asking to glean? She didn't really need permission to that. The law gave her permission. So she's, it seems like she's asking for something beyond the law of gleaning. So what is that? Let's, let's think about the task here. Maybe the picture helps us to, yeah, it's kind of faint, but maybe you can see it. So here's the steps of harvesting. First, the harvesters, which is the men, go in and cut the stalks. They grab some stalks in their hand and they cut it with some sort of scythe. And then they lay the handfuls on the ground and they keep moving on cutting. Following them come the women who gather the handfuls together and pile them up into sheaves. And once the the sheaves are gathered, then they can be taken to the threshing floor where the grain gets beat out of off the stalks, right? The gleaners, so first you have the men, right? They're cutting. Behind them come the women picking up the stalks. And then back here come the gleaners. Now what does Ruth say? Please let me glean and gather after the reapers among the sheaves. So this this is the big debate point on this verse. But I've, I've become convinced that probably what we've got here is a request that a gutsy request that is being made that the foreman doesn't feel he has authority to answer. And so Ruth is hanging out, waiting for the boss to show up to get an answer to her question. And her question is not simply, can I glean in the field? The question is, can I do my gleaning behind the men after they cut and lay down the stalks while the women are coming along to gather. I want to be right there. Why? Because there's more to pick up. And the foreman says, I I can't give you that permission. Boaz comes along, and I'm not sure that he gives her permission right away. Because he, he says, the first thing he says is, is my daughter, you know, I've heard the stories about you, and, uh, and I want you to do your gleaning in this field. And uh, if you need water, you, you can drink from what the men have drawn and, and glean here, you know, with my women. It's not quite clear that he, he says yes to her request. And then lunchtime comes, and at lunchtime, 
he says to her, come and eat with us. And, and after lunch, as she goes to her task, it's clear that he's made his decision and he says to the men, uh, you let her, let her glean among the sheaves and don't give her a hard time. In fact, more than that, uh, every now and then, drop a, drop a couple, right? Ruth is a woman of initiative, and she's a woman of risk-taking faith. And she's rewarded for it. I love this uh, statement of... Uh, Of Boaz, verse 12, may the Lord repay you for what you have done. May the Lord, uh, may you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Ruth is a woman of courage, strength, and deep faith in Yahweh. Trusting him to provide for her and for Naomi. Now here's an interesting thing. This is chapter 3. And now my daughter, this is, you know, there's more to this story. <laughs> but we'll anticipate this. Boaz says, now my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all you ask. All the people of my town know that you are a woman of noble character. Here's the interesting thing. You know that word high yield we talked about? Boaz is a man of high yield. He's a man of strength, of standing. This is the same word again. Only a couple times in the Old Testament is this word used of a woman. But it's used of Ruth. Boaz is a man of high yield. Ruth, Boaz recognizes, she is a woman of high yield. Now, what do you think is going to happen when a man of high yield meets a woman of high yield? Well, you can guess that, right? There's another place where this word is used of a woman. Proverbs 31, the picture of the ideal wife, a wife of noble character, of high yield. Who can find? She is worth far more than rubies. Hey friends, character counts. Character counts. And we We need to be people who cultivate character in one another, but, but in ourselves, right? And, and part of the Ruth story is it's an illustration of, of these character qualities held up to us as an example, to Israel as an example, to us as an example. So uh, let's cultivate it. <laughs>
Let's be people of integrity and wholeness and see what God will do as he works in us and through us. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for for this story, Lord, so encouraging that, that you would be actively involved in the lives of, of people in ways that astound us and that, that they would respond to you in such striking ways, lives transformed not only for their benefit, Lord, but for the benefit of generations. We remember that this story is so important because it's going to bring us down to King David. And the story of King David is going to bring us down to the story of Jesus. And we're, we're freshly aware, God, that you've been working through generations to accomplish your purposes. And we, even today, are the beneficiaries of what was happening so long ago. So we give you thanks. We pray that you'd encourage us with these stories, even this week. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.